Good morning. It is wonderful to be with you. My name is Wade, and I'm a pastor here for the college students here at Parkview Church. It's a real joy to be with you. We're going to continue to worship Jesus as we turn to God's Word. This morning we're going to be in Mark 9, 30 to 48. Mark 9, 30 to 48. We are in a series entitled Crown and Cross. And as that video just showed you, we're seeing two things about Jesus. One, Jesus is this wonderful king who has come to establish this kingdom where everything that's gone wrong in the world is starting to be put right. And so he's healing people and he's teaching people and he's showing them what the path looks like to truly follow him. But yet this is a different type of king. Jesus has a mission and it's greater than just healing people or teaching some good things about how to love God and love others. It's actually a mission to go to a cross and to be crucified on behalf of sinners under the judgment of God. So crown and cross. And actually, that kind of summarizes the identity and mission of followers of Jesus. The very pattern of Jesus must become our pattern and must determine who we are. We must, so to speak, follow Jesus on his way to the cross and through it to the resurrection and newness of life. That is the demand of Jesus on every single one of us who decide to follow him. Which leads me to the question this morning, who actually gets to determine our identity and purpose? Who gets the final say, the authoritative word on who we are and how we should live? Because there are a lot of voices in our culture, politics, celebrities, social media, that would try to determine who we are and how we should live. The good news this morning is actually that Jesus has a clear and strong and powerful word to speak to us about who we are as Christians and what it really means to follow him in this world. And so let's read Mark 9, 30 to 48. And let's hear the word of God that is totally true and utterly reliable for us. Beginning in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, this is Jesus' mission statement, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But his disciples did not understand what he was saying. And they were afraid to ask him. And so they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so Jesus sat down and he calls the 12 to them and he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. So he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. And then John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Because it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to enter into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. And salt is good, but the salt has lost its saltiness. How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's holy word. To him alone be glory. And since he is our father, let's go to him in prayer. Abba Father, you alone are worthy of our deepest desires, our most passionate worship, and our highest honor. As we turn to your word, please send the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart to see you for who you are. We long to meet with the living God of the Bible. And we expect our lives to be changed as we encounter you through your word. We need a fresh sense of the greatness of Jesus, the glory of being his disciples, and the joy, the joy of costly obedience to you, Jesus. Father, we are desperate for this, so set us free from what enslaves us so that we can enjoy all the good that is ours in Christ. So here we are, needy children, begging you for mercy to please help us believe all that you teach, obey all that you command, trust all that you promise, and revere all that you reveal about yourself for the sake of your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. David Brooks, some of you might know who that is. He is a New York Times uh, op-ed columnist who has written many brilliant articles about American culture. I actually uh, recommend his writing to you. It is very incisive and totally brilliant. Well, a few years ago, he wrote a book entitled The Road to Character. Maybe some of you have read it. It was a New York Times bestseller. In this amazing book, Brooks describes the reality that America has forgotten how to form character and build virtue into our lives. Instead, what has happened in America and if we're honest here in Iowa City, as we have become a culture addicted to success, accolades, money, and celebrity. Brooks argues that there has been a fundamental shift in our culture. Around the World War II generation, there was a culture of self-effacement where it was usual to, for people to deny themselves and serve their community. But rather, right now, we live in what Brooks calls a big me culture. A big me culture. 
This is what he means by saying we live in a big me culture. As I looked around the popular culture, I kept finding the same messages everywhere. You are special. Trust yourself. Be true to yourself. Movies from Pixar and Disney are constantly telling children how wonderful they are. Commencement speeches are lo uh, loaded with the same cliches. Follow your passion. Don't accept limits. Chart your own course. You have a responsibility to do great things because you are so great. Brooks calls this the gospel of self-trust. He goes on. Ellen DeGeneres put it like this in a 2009 commencement address. My advice to you all is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. In her mega-selling book, Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote that God manifests himself through, quote, my own voice within myself. God dwells within you as you yourself, exactly as you are. This is the culture of the big me. So what has happened right now in our contemporary context is we have actually forgotten to look to God and others to form a sense of self, but instead have looked within ourselves to define who we are and to fulfill our true purpose in life. And Brooks has identified something significant that we must be honest with ourselves if we're going to look, listen to Jesus rightly. It is this. We live in a culture that has placed self as the authoritative guide for discovering your identity, who you are, and your purpose, how you should live. Now here's the problem with this. The problem is that when we look within ourselves to define who we are and to discover our purpose in life, horrible things happen. Because as we have become a culture of the big me, things have happened and increased in our culture. Broken marriages have increased. Sexual assaults on young women from men in power. Racial discrimination, the insanity of the growth of addiction to pornography among both men and women, greedy materialism and injustice towards the poor, and in general, just an apathy towards what is good, true, and beautiful. We live in a post-truth culture is what many people say, and the reason is, that, is because we try to look within ourselves for what is true and good, and it has disastrous consequences. Now here's the thing. It is not just a problem out there with the wicked world and somehow in here we're just doing fine. This problem of the big me has influenced us in the church. Because if we don't know who we are and how we should live and learn to look to God and his word alone for our authority and how we should define ourselves and how we should live, what happens is we end up getting caught in the same patterns of thinking and living like the world. And so instead of becoming a church that is a distinctive community that's different from the world for the sake of blessing the world, we become exactly like the world and our witness is harmed. And so the same things that are causing trouble outside of us are what's causing trouble inside of us. Now here's the good news. Jesus wants to rescue us from this. 
And that's why Mark 9 is such good news. Because here in Mark 9, we're learning this one big idea. This is the big aim. If you're going to take away one thing from this sermon, here it is. You can write this down if you want. The big aim of Jesus in Mark 9 is this. Jesus wants to determine who we are and how we live. Jesus determines who we are and how we should live. If you, if you look down at verse 30 to 32, uh, th- this is the beginning of what, what Jesus is trying to do. He's defining his mission. He is saying, I'm the son of man who's going to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm going to be killed and then after three days rise again. And if you look at verse 32, his disciples, they don't understand quite what he's saying because they're expecting this military power type of kingdom and Jesus is doing something totally different. And they're afraid to ask him why. Because if you go back to Mark 8, Jesus did a similar thing. He says, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And Peter says, uh, no, you're not. And then Jesus rebukes him, right? And then what does Jesus do right after that? He defines the core characteristic of being a disciple of Jesus, which is what? Self-denial to enter the kingdom of God. If you're going to find your life, you have to lose your life. And so this pattern is here as well. Jesus defines his mission, and then immediately after that, from verse 33 all the way down to 48, 50, Jesus starts showing, this is what it looks like. If you're going to follow me to the way of the cross, here's what should mark the Christian community. Here are the three identities that a Christ-centered community must have if we are going to be shaped by Jesus. If we're going to find out who we are and how we should live, there are three things we must become. You ready for this? The three things are these. We must become a people of humility who are willing to serve the last. We must become a people of hospitality, a community willing to welcome the different. And then third, if we're going to let the cross and resurrection of Jesus define our community, we must become a a community committed to holiness. Holiness in which we're willing to pursue purity at any cost. Those three again. People of humility willing to serve the last. People of hospitality willing to welcome the different. And the people of holiness willing to pursue purity at any cost. Look down with me at our first point, humility. The community willing to serve the last. Look down at verse 33 to 37. Jesus, they go to Capernaum. And he asked his disciples, because he must have heard them on the way, he said, what were you discussing when we were walking to Capernaum? And so they keep silent. For on the way, get this, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So when Jesus gets in power, uh, John, Peter, James, Matthew, the disciples, when he gets to power on his throne, who's going to be second in command? Is it going to be Peter? John? Is it Matthew? Who's it going to be? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the top dog in this band of 12 disciples? Well, Jesus sits down, as many teachers would do in that culture, and it's a posture of teaching, authority. That's what he says. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So if you're going to be the greatest, you actually have to put on the character of humility. What, What does Jesus mean? Well, then he illustrates this brilliantly, by verse 36, taking a child and putting him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, 
Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying this. He brings a child into the room and places him in the midst of these disciples to show that children in that society have no power, no status at all. They were actually the very last in society. And so what he's saying is they must become like children and actually end up serving those who are last, those without power, those without status, those who are suffering the least, the lost. And so Jesus is saying down with human-centered pride and our constant addiction for selfish ambition and glory and status. That has nothing to do with the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus calls us to be people of service and humility towards those who are least in society. A friend of mine recently, in a conversation over lunch, a friend here at Parkview, he explained to me how every week he lovingly serves uh, people at a local independent living center, the oldest generation. And his heart just yearns to serve these dear people. And he has such an eagerness to see the gospel transform this community. And so when, in a time and place when our culture disregards the oldest generation and instead celebrates youth and celebrity, my friend is willing to serve the last and the least of society. He's embodying the humility of Jesus in the context of this community. You remember what I said at the very beginning about David Brooks? We live in a big me culture. You look within yourself to find yourself, to find your truest joy. It's found in this process of self-discovery. But can we be honest about the reality of the increasing misery and hopelessness and depression and anxiety that are crippling this community? As a college pastor, I spend most of my time with college students, of course. And one of the things that my college students are telling me is that on the University of Iowa, there is such a crisis of mental health and a deep, pervasive hopelessness and anxiety about their lives. Friends, in the midst of this culture, Jesus is calling us to serve the least and last of these, not to look within ourselves to find happiness and joy, but to find true joy by looking outside of ourselves in humble service to other people. So who is it in your community, in your family? Maybe it's in your community group here at Parkview. Maybe it's at your workplace. Who is it that the world will look at and say that person really means nothing? Friends, those are the people that Jesus is telling you to meet with, to love, to care, and to serve. That is the first characteristic of a community defined by the cross and resurrection of Jesus, is humble service. What's the second mark? Well, the second mark is hospitality. Hospitality, a community willing to welcome those who are different. Look down at verse 38. So then John brings up, maybe in this moment of teaching, he says, Teacher, Here's the deal. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, but we try to stop him because this is the deal. He, 
this demon uh, exorcist person, he was not following us. He wasn't part of our team. Disciples are actually in a dilemma of difference. A dilemma of difference. What do I mean? Well, it's someone who's definitely not on their team doing something in the name of Jesus. And because he's not part of their tribe, because he's not part of their, you know, maybe their, their, their doctrinal beliefs, maybe he's not part of their uh, cool club, whatever it is, they want to get rid of him and kick him out because he's so different. Something inside of the human heart is so allergic to people of difference. Whether it's the color of our skin, the amount of money in our bank, we all struggle with the dilemma of difference. And so how does Jesus respond to that? What does it look like for Jesus to determine who you are in the midst of a culture with differences? We'll look down at verse 39. Jesus says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name, meaning those who believe in me and therefore work according to me in belief in who I am, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Get this. For the one who is not against us is for us. So even though he might not be part of your special little tribe, if he's still a part of Christ, he is your brother and therefore deserves to be welcomed and gladly accepted into the community. A posture of hospitality is necessary. Look at, Jesus continues with this, verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, an act of hospitality, because, why? Because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. And so Jesus is telling us, for those who claim to be his disciples, we are not to reject others because they are different from us, but rather in Christian love, we are to welcome them gladly in a posture of hospitality. We are called to welcome those who are different from us. At 24-7, we are a community of students seeking to love what Jesus loves. One of the things that we're trying to do as best we can by the power of the Spirit is to create communities in which people can be a part of of learning who Jesus is, even if they're very different from us. One of the main ways we do this is through the community groups that we have. John McHale is helping shepherd those community groups, and John McHale is the best. Um, and one of the things that uh, John has helped us understand is the need to be missional, to be outward-facing, to be welcoming those who are different inside of our community so that they can understand who Jesus is and follow him. I love John's heart in that. Well, one particular campus group, uh, it's typically a leader of a male student and a female student. They came to me last semester and they said this, get this, okay, lean into this, this is amazing. College students, it's amazing. They said, wait, our desire and prayer is that our campus group will be a representation of the kingdom. We've seen Jesus answer this prayer, Wade. There are people in our group from different cultures, countries, and beliefs. Everyone is welcome to learn about Jesus in our community. That's a culture of hospitality, friends. That's what Jesus calls us to. I love my college students. I love that they're taking steps in obedience to Jesus. Friends, uh, here at Parkview, we are called to be a kingdom that's more and more representing 
who Jesus is, who welcomes the outsider. I love recently that Paul Donaldson has led us in serving the Sudanese population here in Iowa City. They are so different from us, a different culture, different language, different beliefs often. And it's beautiful to see us come together to serve these dear people in the name of Jesus. So friends, who in your life, who is different from you? Is there someone with a different skin color? Is there someone with a different economic status? Friends, these are not things that ought to be barriers for the Christian community. Friends, we are called to have a posture of hospitality in which we lovingly welcome and accept those who are different from us because that is what Jesus has done for you and for me. And he wants to shape us here at Parkview into a place of hospitality instead of a place that hinders people because of difference. That's the second mark of those who are defined by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, there's a, there's a third thing. We have seen now that there's a call in our lives. Jesus determines who we are and how we should live. First, by being people of humility, a community willing to serve the last. Then hospitality, a people who are welcoming those who are different. And then last, friends, the final marker of a Christ-centered community, one who has been shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus is a community committed to holiness. Holiness, that's the third main point. Friends, are we willing to pursue purity no matter what it costs us? Are we willing to put integrity and love for Jesus above everything else in our life? In the Beatitudes, that's the 24-7 studying this. Uh, on Wednesday nights, we have our big gathering, and we, we're looking at the Beatitudes. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. He's not primarily talking about sexual purity. Purity of heart is actually to be cleansed from false motives, and to have a singular motive, which is to honor Jesus in every area of your life. That's what holiness is. It is an utter devotion to Jesus. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to become a community of holiness? Look down at verse 42. First, it is holiness and purity in our relationships. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him it would be better for this person if they had over a thousand pound weight strung around their neck and to be carried into a sea and just tossed there and to drown in the ocean. Do you see how serious Jesus is about sin, friends? He wants purity in our relationships so badly, way more than we do. Those of you in leadership, are you embodying characteristics of the world and not Jesus in such a way that you're leading those under you towards disobedience to Jesus? Parents, are we leading our children in righteousness and truth? in the midst of a culture that is so anti-God in his ways 
Friends, purity in our relationships. Can I say something specifically here? Jesus says, one who causes these little ones who believe in me to sin. There's two meanings here, I think. The first is those who believe in me. So he's just talking about Christians in general. But in particular, little ones, those who are vulnerable, those who are exposed to uh, leadership of people in their lives. Friends, with this recent news and judgment against uh, Larry Nasser, this has become so serious. What happened at Michigan State University in the women's gymnastics team is utterly reprehensible to Jesus Christ. And we should become a community that is so countercultural that we tenderly care and love for our dear children whom God has given us. And so those of us in leadership, those of us who are parents, and I include myself because I lead 85 wonderful students, we must reckon with the reality that there, we have power to lead people towards sin. And Jesus is saying, if we do that, it is better that we'd have a thousand pound weight strung around our neck and we jump into the ocean and drown. Jesus is serious about sin, friends, because he wants purity. He wants beauty. He wants reality in his community. It's not only in our relationships, but friends, it's also in our personal lives. Look down at verse 43 to 48. Jesus says, if you have a hand that's causing you to sin, cut it off. He's actually not talking about mutilation. God actually invented the human body and loves it. It is good. And for us to mutilate ourselves is actually against God's design. It's actually a metaphor. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, Jesus says. It's better for you. Get this. Look at the logic of Jesus. It's better for you to enter life crippled, life, eternal life, heaven. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If there are paths that you are wandering down that are leading you towards disobedience to Jesus, cut it off. Because it's better for you to have one foot and limp into the kingdom of heaven than to have two feet and what you think is happiness enter into the eternal judgment of hell. If you have an eye that is looking at things you should not be looking at, that is coveting people, places, or things that you should not covet, that is desiring things that you ought not desire, you should pluck out that eye, friends. Because it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God that Jesus wants you to be a part of with him forever. It's better for you to have one eye to do whatever it takes to cut off what's hindering you from a wholehearted devotion to Jesus than for you to have two eyes and follow all of your passions and desires and go to hell. Friends, don't believe the lie that our culture says that hell is a joke and that it's not real. This is Jesus. I know that we love the gentleness of Jesus 
and I do too, and all of his mercy and grace. We love that. But can you not see the mercy and grace of Jesus in being totally honest with you that hell is real and out of love for you, him saying, I do not want you to go to hell and for you to pursue addictive behavior in sin that will cut you off from a right relationship with me and for you to turn away from a wholehearted following of Jesus into the misery of sin. He does not want that for you. And so out of serious love for you, he is saying there is danger, friends, for paths that you walk down that lead to disobedience and misery, for you to follow your eyes towards what you desire and what you want to pursue. You've got to cut it off. Because then Jesus quotes Isaiah 66, 66 talking about a place called the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament, where the worm does not die, verse 48, and the fire is not quenched. It is the place that Jesus is picking up here that at the time of the Old Testament was where child sacrifice happened, where people would carry their children and sacrifice them to these false gods that actually didn't exist. And they would kill their own children in hopes to better their own lives because they think they thought in some insane thinking that that's how that works. To improve my life, I'll just kill my children. And it was a place where uh, there was this constant fire that was not quenched. It was a place of God's justice towards sin. So what are we hearing actually in this final passage? Jesus is serious about holiness. And as I was preparing this, you know, this actually, this is the section by far that was giving me the most trouble because I'm new here. And for the life of me, I thought, is there any way I could kind of water this down? Is there any way I could make this say that what it's not saying? Because sin and the judgment of hell is something that's simply laughed at in our society. And many of you in here right now think that's a total joke. Hell is not real. And you are at such a dangerous place, friend. But here's what I realized. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and so I got to visit the Grand Canyon several times throughout my childhood. You know, there's, there's signs posted everywhere at the Grand Canyon. You know what they say? Stay off the ledge. It's dangerous. And do you know how foolish it would be as a young kid if I thought, these park rangers must utterly hate me. If they're going to put up signs that talk about there's this dangerous thing called the Grand Canyon, and if I goof off on the edge that I might fall in, how could they say such hurtful things to me with such seriousness about danger and all that? That would be totally foolish of me, wouldn't it? Likewise, it would be foolish for us to look at the seriousness of Jesus as he looks you in your eye and out of love, out of love, he says, if you are not willing to take drastic measures to cut off sin in your life, that left unchecked will lead you towards a path of rejecting him 
and turning away from him. There will be hell. So let me actually tell you how this is influencing my own life. There was a, a time five years ago where I had a wonderful, kind pastor who saw a posture in my heart that was very ungodly. And he was seeing this pattern in my life continue, left unchecked. And I still remember the moment that my pastor's name was Kurt. I love, I love this man to this day for what he did in this moment. It was a shift in my life. My pastor sat me down. He looked me right in the eye and he said, Wade, you are not taking your sin seriously enough. I'm concerned for you and I love you. This does not have to define you. You can turn away from this sin. And do you know why I listened to Kurt? I listened to him because I knew that he loved me. And I knew that he wanted what was best for me. Friends, when Jesus talks to us about our sin, we must listen to him because he loves us. How do I know that? Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, Jesus Christ died for our sins so we could walk in newness of life. Therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin, cutting it off, and alive to God in Christ. So maybe you should think of it this way. The sin that Jesus is convicting you about in your life is the very sin that he actually hates so much, he's willing to die for it on the cross. And out of love for you, he is saying, I have died for that, and you can be set free from that. If you are in Christ this morning, you have freedom from sin because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And in the power of his resurrection, he fills you with his Holy Spirit for a renewed obedience in holiness. Parkview, we must, we must obey Jesus and follow him in holiness. And this is our conclusion. Jesus, he himself determines who we are and how we should live. We are to be humbled, willing to serve the last. We are to be hospitable, willing to welcome the different. We are to be holy, willing to pursue purity at any cost. Because, friends, Jesus is the humble one. Jesus came to serve us at our greatest need, rescuing us from sin he was the greatest and he became the last on the cross so that he can command us with all authority to humble ourselves and follow his very pattern to serve the last and the least. Friends, Jesus is the hospitable one. He is the one who welcomes us in all of our difference from him and our misery and sinfulness and moral ugliness compared to his beauty and joy and glory. He has come to us in welcoming love to embrace us at our very worst. Do you know that? At your very worst, Jesus welcomes you gladly. That is the message of the gospel. And if you are not a Christian today, that is open for you and available. Jesus is available for you, welcoming himself gladly to you in hospitality. 
And that's why, friends, we as Parkview must become a culture of hospitality, welcoming those who are different, because that is what Jesus has done for us. And then finally, Jesus is the Holy One who is willing to give us purity at the greatest cost of his own life. Those of you who have been carrying sexual shame for years and who have been participating in sexual addiction for years, do you know that you have been fully cleansed through Jesus Christ and in him is fullness of forgiveness and in him is newness of life? You can actually turn away from your sin that is not to define who you are. But what defines who you are is the finished work of Jesus and what he has offered to you. It is his very holiness. It is his own purity. All of the purity of Jesus is given to you through the cross and resurrection. And it is for you to receive right now. Right now. Why would you not receive it? And in response, friends, we are called to be a holy community turning from sin and in wholehearted obedience to Jesus to love him, to pursue him, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to be a purified community in how we relate to one another in our own personal lives behind closed doors, that we would honor God in everything that we do and that our highest aim is the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. Friends, Parkview, this is Jesus. This is the discipleship he calls us to. This is what he has purchased for us through his death and resurrection. And he is welcoming us to this discipleship right now. Humility, hospitality, and holiness. Friends, it is ours in Jesus Christ. Would we come, would we come to Christ and be the community that he wants us to be. Pray with me. Father, we love you and you love your son Jesus. In him we have the humility, the hospitality, and the holiness that we long for. This is who we are. This is how we should live. Father, by your spirit, we ask that you would make this real to our hearts. I pray right now for those who feel stuck in the same sin. Holy Spirit, would you just preach the gospel to their heart that Jesus is their holiness, that Jesus sets them free from their sin through his death on the cross, and they have newness of life in the Spirit. Lord, we offer ourselves. You're worthy of worship, Jesus. We enjoy you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to go into a time of worship. This is a time for you to respond to the Word of God. You can sit. You can stand. It's our time to come to Jesus, the humble one, the hospitable one who welcomes the holy one and purifies us. Let's worship Jesus.